All right, Sam. Welcome back to Discovery Bible Study. Last week, I cheated on you a little bit, hung out with Bruce for a bit. Have you listened to that episode, by the way? I have not yet. I am very far behind on my my podcast regimen, but I'm I'm catching up. I'm catching up. In fairness, though, at the time of recording, it's only been out for two days, so you've got you've got time. Maybe by the time the audience is hearing this, you will have been able to experience the glory that is that little front porch book club experience that that Bruce and I put together. It was fun hanging out with him. But we are back this week with Luke chapter 6 of Discovery Bible Study. We're going to do the first part today. It's a 49 verse chapter, so we're going to split it up. So without further ado, let's hop right into it. As always, we'll be in the Christian Standard Bible. We're not sponsored. We'd be open to it. Just throwing that out there. If anyone over at Brooks Holman uh, would like to call me, that'd be great. Welcome to Discovery Bible Study on Front Porch Report. Here, every other week, Sam and I look at a chapter from the Holy Scriptures and ask a set of simple questions. What does this text say about people? What does it say about God? And what does it say about the Gospel? From there, we use the insights we glean to discover how the passage is relevant to us and how we can apply it to our lives. This Bible study method is tried and tested in individual and small group settings and is designed to help God's Word speak more clearly to the biblical novice or the master theologian. Thank you for joining us this week, and we pray that this study is fruitful to you and to your ministry. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? or to do evil, to save a life, or to destroy it. After looking around at them all, he told him, Stretch out your hand. He did, and the hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then, looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. 
Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will now be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for this is the way that their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. Man, I'm glad that you were the one that was reading that second half because there was one thing that really stuck out at me and I had a little moment <laughs> in the background while you were reading it. I think I think we'll get to that a little later, though. Um, to start off with, let's go ahead and look at our first question, which, as we said at the top, is what does this passage say about God? Oh, you asking, you asking me? I'm asking you, Sam. <laughs> Oh, man. So one of the things that I think is really interesting here is how the different original audiences bring nuance into how the authors wrote the manuscripts. So many people uh, put a tie between the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount Sermon on the Plain being, of course, here in Luke chapter 6. Sermon on the Mount being uh, Matthew starting in chapter 5, right? And we're calling this the Sermon on the Plain because it says he stood on a level place and then basically goes on to say the Beatitudes like he does in Matthew chapter 5. Yeah. And I think likely if you look at the historical context, it's likely that uh, this is a sermon that Jesus preached on multiple occasions that were probably changed a little bit at each location, um, which accounts for the differences in the words that you'll see, particularly the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you'll notice are, are a little bit different. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is what the author writes down, uh, whether it's Luke or Matthew. So if you notice, Luke says in verse 20 that because the kingdom of God is yours. But if you go to Matthew, Matthew's account says the kingdom of heaven is yours. And there's a lot of debate uh, about why that's the case. And and in fact, you could get into some eschatological principles if you really want to. Um, We're not going to go there. That is not for this venue. Shout out to dad. You know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You said shout out to dad? Yeah. um, We uh, went to a Bible study one time and there was this one guy who went on a little side tangent about <laughs> some of the eschatological possibilities of that distinction. Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, I, and I, I think, in my opinion, that's a little bit eisegetical. Um, but we'll, we'll see. But what, what I find is interesting is what's likely happening is Matthew is, is predominantly writing to a Jewish audience. In fact, there's, there's some tradition that would even suggest that Matthew's first manuscripts were not even in Greek. They were in... Aramaic, or uh, some traditions might even say Hebrew, um, in order that it could reach the Jewish people first. And Luke here, Luke is is writing, uh, as we established in Luke chapter 1, to a guy named Theopolis. Doesn't get more Greek than that. (laughs) What what am I going about? What does this say about God on this long side tangent? But what's interesting is, is, is both of these are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not devoid the person of their personality and their nuance while writing. Um, You know, the apostles or those with apostolic authority who were writing these manuscripts, they still were in control of their bodies. They were just inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, which is where we get the theology of inerrancy of scripture that applies to original manuscripts. And so Matthew's point is to write in such a way that is to be palatable and to be understood by a Jewish audience. Because if he was to use the verbiage kingdom of God, uh, that for some historians would argue that's almost offensive to the Jewish people at the time. Whereas Luke is writing to a a Greek person, Theopolis, as as Tess just said. And so, you know, for me, Taz, looking at this, I see the the nuance that, that the Holy Spirit would allow the author's personality to come through in such a way that the 
the original audience is so important that whether it needs to be more understood or needs to be um, more clear in this instance that what Luke is talking about. And I think that's beautiful. And, and there's a, a tension there that some people have, whether it's kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in this. And, and, you know, our Western thought is, you know, we have to resolve this tension. Oh no. When we can just kind of embrace that nuance and to say that the Holy spirit is going to use the authors to do what is best to reach those who are the, intended audience by the authors but even us today and that we get a look at these uh, manuscripts that are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old and i think that's really cool um so that that's something i see is is god the holy spirit uh working in this passage through those original authors taz what do you see well, yeah, just to even piggyback off of yours for a second, like there's so many parallels between this passage and Matthew chapter five that you we could we could have some fun maybe someday doing an episode where we just sort of parse about like what are the minor word differences. Like Matthew says the poor in spirit, Luke says the poor. Like that's a that's a whole rabbit trail we could go on to and talking about how mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit used a man like Luke who is so concerned with like the literally poor of the world, right? And I think that it's really special, like you said, that the Holy Spirit works in order to reach different people through different means, while also having all of it, you know, be in agreement. Um, For me, Sam, something I'm going to draw from this text is something you've probably heard before. Um, Tell me this. Have you ever heard the phrase, the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of it? Mm, I think I think I have a few times, yes. And I'm going to draw this, of course, from the stories about the Sabbath that we get kind of early on. And I'm just always I'm fascinated by verse seven, where it says the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. And it really lets us reveal it kind of reveals to us their heart you know they're not they're not against jesus because they're actually outraged that he's breaking the law they are against jesus because of the things that he is saying which go against their own power their own spiritual authority in the land and they're going to use whatever strategy they can in order to sort of take him down for that and so like they're like waiting for him they're like man I, it, it reminds me of if you've seen the the Kenobi show, listener. I know you have, Sam. At the beginning, the that Inquisitor comes into town and he says, "It's easy to hunt a Jedi because their compassion always finds them out." And so the Pharisees are acting just like the Inquisitor there. They're like, "Oh, he's going to have compassion on this guy and heal him, and that's how we're going to get him," ignoring the fact that God is someone who obviously cares for people who need healing, and you know, God is the source of miracles, right? But back to the point of the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of it. Jesus tells a story about David and his men who enter the house of the Lord and eat the bread of the presence. And that's a that's a whole rabbit trail that we could go into and what the bread of the presence is. Basically, they would bake 12 loaves of bread, leave it on a shelf for a week. And then after the week was over, you know, the priest would get to eat that. But David was not a priest. He was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. So he's technically not eligible to be able to eat that bread, even though it is more than a week old and um, is no longer serving that purpose of staying in the tabernacle. And in the in the actual First Samuel account where this comes from, I read it right before we started recording. The priest says, "Oh, you can eat it just as long as you haven't been with a woman." And David's like, "Well, okay, that's fine. I'm, I have not been with a woman recently." And so the author there doesn't seem to make a big deal out of it, but I'm interested in the fact that Jesus says, yeah, that wasn't lawful for him to do, but I'm using him as an example for what I'm doing and what my disciples are doing. So he's almost kind of implicitly acknowledging that maybe it's not lawful for my disciples to be grabbing heads of grain on the Sabbath, but I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so The spirit of the law with regard to the Sabbath is that it is supposed to be a day of rest, a chance for us to rest from the toils of the world, to focus on our relationship with God. And 
by being with Jesus walking through this field, his disciples are recharging their relationship with God. And it doesn't matter that they are doing something that might, according to the Talmud or the Mishnah, be considered work, even though they're doing that. They are following the spirit of the law by being under the teachings of Jesus. And so whenever we're looking at the Bible and we find a law, or we find a set of commands, we find a prohibition, whatever it is, our first thought shouldn't be, okay, how do I apply this literally to my life in most cases? Some it's like, don't murder. Okay, got that. Don't murder. That's, that's kind of timeless. But there's other things where it's like, we should look at it and think to ourselves, why would God say this? to this people in their context, what is the spirit behind that? And then how does that spirit apply to my life? Because God, like you said, speaks to people in their time, in their context. And then through how they respond to that and through the words is actually, it's Torah or instruction, wisdom for us in how we're supposed to live our lives. And so that's what I learn about God is that he uses wisdom given to one group And the spirit of that wisdom is more important than the actual literal phrases and what he actually tells them to do. Yeah, that man, that's such a great point. And and going back to your your original statement that the spirit of the law is more important than the letter of it. What I find is really interesting is, is that word later in the verse where it says, we're watching closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they could find a charge against him. The Greek there is almost an insinuation of like to find or discover after searching intently. Uh, it's Harisco. I probably butchered that. The The Greek people in the world uh, are going to angrily email me probably. Uh, Strong's Concordance 2147. If y'all are a Strong's Concordance person, not important, but it, it almost insinuates that it, it is examination or a finding that happens after intently searching. And so it's not like a, a casual thing. It's like they are looking for every little thing they can do to pin Jesus down. And I, I just think that's, that's really interesting. So Taz, uh, no surprise, we're going to segue where we always segue after what does this say about God? And I'm going to ask you, Uh, What do you see in the text about what this is about people? Well, Sam, for this one, I am going to take a look at the the Beatitudes and the woes in verses 20 through 22 and 24 to 26. And I'm especially going to look at the woes. Um, So I'll just read them out again. So woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. And the thing I'm going to draw out about people from that is that we want different things than what God wants. And we're, we're wrong. I am. Um, I was struck reading earlier in verse 23. It says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. And the thing that that verse is telling us to rejoice about is that people hate us and exclude us, insult us, and slander our names as evil. It's like, rejoice in that leap for joy. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Like, the things that I want are the things that are in the woes. It's like, man, I want to be rich and comfortable. I want to be full instead of hungry. I want to be laughing instead of crying. And I want people to say nice things about me. And, like, that's just not what's important to God. And as a Christian, I'm supposed to be someone who takes what God thinks and what God wants, you know, most seriously in my life. And... I think that, you know, the majority of people throughout time have probably agreed with me that all those are seem like nice things and the things in the in the Beatitudes don't seem like very nice things. And yeah, so that's noteworthy to me. And it, it tells me that in order for someone to actually have a relationship with God, something massive needs to give. Because, like, there is no one going along with the status quo, going along with the flow that is going to rejoice and leap for joy whenever they're poor or hungry or people hate them. 
Taz, I, I really appreciate your discussion there because our human tendencies are to want the things that you talked about, the wanting to be rich, the wanting to be comfortable. And I think all too often we look at the passage of the rich young ruler and it's like when Jesus is like, for it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter my gates. And like in the Western world, like we always do this analysis and we talk about like, oh, the eye of a needle was a gate entering into Jerusalem, which it was. And it's like, you know, the camels going through would have to like really try to get through. And in fact, they would often have to like shed off things uh, that they were carrying in order to get through because uh, it was such a narrow gate and so on and such forth. And we kind of like do this mental gymnastics to try to like talk about how, you know, oh, it's not, it's not a literal, it's a metaphorical and this and that. And I feel like we just devolve the text of any meaning when we do that. And it's like, yeah, technically if we want to get into it, but also like Jesus isn't pulling punches. Jesus isn't like, Oh, you know, you know, well, maybe it's, it's easier for the camel to go through. No, he says it's easier for the camel to go through of an eye of a needle. And I, I, you know, I think that can be applied literally there, you know, and we'll probably get there. I don't know if it's in the Luke account. I know it's in the Mark account, but I just, I think it's interesting because we, we don't often like to think of ourselves in America as rich, but you know, just a plug for uh, Compassion International. I know you you have a Compassion kid that, that y'all support. Like, <laughs> y'all have three kids y'all support? Three kids. We're not the best about writing to one of them, but uh, we'll try to work on that, I guess. That's, that's awesome, man. And, and man, like, you know... What if what if we as Christians were known more as our by our generosity than than by our accumulation of wealth? Oh man, when I when I look at this passage about what this tells me about people, I I think of seventeen through nineteen and how desperate the crowd is to find something there is a large crowd of people following him. And, and it says people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and, and from the sea coast of, of Tyre and Sidon. And, and this is a massive area of people. And, and they came for Jesus. They came to be healed. They came for all sorts of reasons. And man, people are hungry. And one of the things that I hear in in discipleship and in casual conversations is I hear Christians say, well, I I share the gospel everywhere and when it's necessary, I use words. And I I just, I hate that. It makes me want to vomit. It's, It's gross. And man, like, what would it mean if we were as Christians were known as an evangelistic people? And you're like, Samuel, of course, I believe in evangelism. It's nice. I gave out a gospel track one time. It was great. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But like, what about the person that sits next to you every day at work? What about the person that sits next to you at school? If you're a college student listening to this. Or a high school student. Or a high school student. You know, hey, no, no shame. And we, we do this thing where it's like, oh, I don't I, I don't want it to be awkward. I don't want it to be awkward. And it's like... Man, I want you to think about how people from all over this region came just to hear Jesus speak. Like, people are hungry for it. And I have people who say things like, oh, cold call or door-to-door evangelism, it just doesn't work, or this or that. And I'm going to be honest, man, when I talk to people doing it, it sure seems to be working, you know? I had a a friend of mine, uh, I won't say his name, but he was uh, going out dancing for uh, him and his wife uh, were, I believe, celebrating his birthday. And they went out to a a dance hall here in San Antonio and they ran into a dude uh, there at the the bar slash dance hall. And this guy was just, how do I phrase this nicely? Inebriated. We'll just say inebriated, right? And like, 
no one else in that moment is going to be like, this guy needs the gospel. Like everyone else is going to be like, it's awkward. We don't want to, we're in a bar. Like what are we, we're, we're going to talk to him, this and that. And, and my, my friend shared the gospel with him at a bar of all places. And the guy was like, man, I think I need Jesus. I don't, I don't know, but like, I need to do, I need to do something. And over the past month or so, I've got to see this gentleman come to our local church and start wrestling with some real things. And I'm, and I'm not saying that he is you know, the most perfect saint in the world now. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm not either by any means, but I can see God actively working in this man. And how many people would have just sat there and been like, oh, we're at a bar. What does it matter? And, and how many opportunities walk by me? I'm talking to me right now every single day that can change someone's eternity. There, there are a few things that you can tell someone that will change their life more radically. I actually know there is nothing you can tell someone that will change their more, life more radically than sharing the gospel with them. Man, what would it mean if we were known as, as a people who cared because even atheists will call us out on this. There was a, a atheist, Penn Gillette, who, who said, I don't like Christians who don't proselytize. Because if you really believe everyone's going to hell, you should be dragging and screaming and begging everyone to believe what you believe. But you don't. Man, that, that's convicting that the atheists are even saying that to us. Yeah. Thank you for that conviction. And, you know, when we say known as evangelists, you might be saying, oh, but we're called evangelicals. But I'm not, you know, we're not talking about being evangelists for good morals or evangelists for voting Republican or being evangelists for even like banning abortion or something like that. We're talking about the deep-seated need inside of all of us to know and be connected to our creator. And I was reading Colossians chapter 1 this morning, and it says that we were alienated from God, enemies of him in our mind, and because of that we do evil. But Jesus, through his body, reconciled us to God and saved us and brought us back. God cares so much about us that he's not going to let us stay alienated, not going to let us remain in that enemy mode of thinking that leads us to do evil things. And you might say, I'm not evil. I'm a pretty good person. And I just want you to really look at yourself and honestly say, hey, I've never done anything that's evil. I've never seen someone with a desperate need and turned the other way because it wasn't convenient at the moment. Or I've never made a mockery of the truth because I wanted to be able to go do this or that. And that's, that's what the gospel is, that God still cares for us in that time. And so, Sam, my question to you is, in this text, what connections do you see to the gospel? So, Jesus promises the kingdom of God to those who are poor. Like he says, blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. And right now, too, it's, it is yours. And you know, trying to figure out, like, what was what does that mean? You know, you know, part of us is trying to sit here and say the gospel is how we reach the kingdom of heaven. You know, um, or the kingdom of God. Like, you believe that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died, was buried, resurrected, triumphing over death for our sin. Like that is what we we should believe as Christians, at least centrally. And it's like, yeah, that's the gospel, but like. So if, if that is how we get to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, eventually, like some point in the future, like 
what what does it mean that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor now? Why did I say poor really wrong there? Or weird. What what does it mean that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor right now? And man, I, I don't know. This is something this this might have fallen the 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 last category, the I don't know category. But man, like what if we you know, I, I think of other passages, and that sermon uh, on the mount, I believe, has this in it. It might be another one of Jesus' teachings. You'll have to forgive me. But, you know, when did we see you and, and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you poor and give you money? And says, that which you've done for the least of these, you've also done for me. And so, man, like, what... <laughs> What are we doing? You know, James says that unbridled religion is this, dear brothers, that you care for the orphans and the widows. Man, what does that mean for us as Christians? Like, how do we how do we really resonate with that? And I, I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm going to give a response to your question there, and I'm going to take Please. it from Mark chapter one, verse. Verses 14 and 15, um, so that this is a different gospel, but it's sort of the beginning of the story of Jesus' ministry. It says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what that says to me is that the kingdom is not just some like far distant future thing. Like it is something that Jesus brought to pass and brought to bear, like with his, with his ministry, with his walk on earth. And I think the, the poor are already a part of that kingdom because they are the ones that actually are in a position to receive it. Right. Jesus, I think last week or the last time did we talk about I didn't come for the I didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick and the poor are the ones that know they're sick. They're the, they know they're the ones that know that they need the kingdom, whereas the rich are like, I have my kingdom here and my kingdom's pretty nice and I can I can live with that. And yeah, so that I guess that'd be my response to that. Like the good news is that something better is here. But if you're so focused on what already is rather than what could be, then you're not going to see the better thing. It reminds me of, you know, the discussion of the, the poor woman who gave the, the mina, which is modern, we would call it a penny. We'll just say a penny. And the, the rich man that gave, you know, a large sum of money, you know, Jesus says that she gave more because she gave all the, that she had, you know. God doesn't care about the things that we care about. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can accomplish his work with, with a very little or with a lot. There is a, every time I think about that woman, there is a VHS tape that my parents had. Um, it was like a Jesus movie. And... That one scene is the one that like always stands out in my memory. Like I, I can only watch the movie once, but she like walks up and she, like drops the thing, and she's like, "It's very little," and people are like, ah, blah, 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 and Jesus is like, "No, what she is given is more than what all of you have given." <laughs> but she's like, "It's very little." <laughs> That's great. Let's go ahead and move into the observations and solve the world questions section. Um, I'll start with an observation. So whenever, whenever I get to this part about the disciples going through the grain fields and like picking the grain, um, Jesus 
makes the hyperlink and the callback to uh, David eating the bread of the presence. But what it always makes me think of for some reason is Jonathan um, sticking his staff in some honey and eating it after Saul said, anyone who eats anything will die. It was like a, it's a battle that happens earlier in first Samuel and Saul kind of rashly, rashly makes this oath that says, Oh, we're going to chase, we're going to give chase to them and no man's going to eat before sundown or else I'll kill him. And Jonathan just didn't hear that. And so he's like wandering around. He's like, it says that he put his staff in the honey, ate, the, tasted the honey and it made his face glad. And they're like, why did you do that? And he's like, cause my face is glad now. <laughs> if you do it, your face will be glad too. <laughs> but uh, that, that story seems to on the surface, like seem a little more similar to what's going on here. It's like, Oh, we're walking, we're hungry. We're going to blah, blah, blah. But, I can understand why Jesus specifically talks about this thing because that was that was a rash decision made by the king, whereas the bread of the presence thing is more about going against the law. Mm. Yeah, I, and so one of the things is like, technically you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, and it's like all I'm doing is like picking fruit, but not to gather just to eat now. And I mean, and technically you were supposed to gather enough for two days the day before, but it's like, are we, are we really being so nitpicky as like, okay, well, you know what? If, if something happened where you couldn't gather food yesterday, you just have to starve for a full day. Oh, guess that's your fasting time. It's built in, you know, and you know, Jesus later talks to the Pharisees and he says, well, do you Pharisees that you, you tithe the time and dill, but you forget the weightier matters of the law. And like, he literally means like the herbs and like things that you would grow like in a little pot. And like, they would even tithe the 10% of that. And they're like so particular that they even want to tithe the tiniest little thing, but you forget the big important stuff, man. Do you have any other questions or observations? Yeah. Feels a little weird that Luke is like, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Uh, In verse 16, you know, it's just like kind of out of nowhere. Not going to lie. It's like, okay, well, you got to. Yeah, they all do that. (laughs) They all, they all like. The gospel writers are not. They don't like a plot twist. They're like, no, you need to know in advance. Like every time Judas is mentioned, this is the traitor, this, guys. We got it. This is this guy sus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it, it's like what, like, I, man, why, why, why are you spoiling the story, man? But hey, okay, mm. I ain't Luke. You can do what you want. Uh, yeah. What do you think, Judas was like? All, do, do you think he had a, a negative character arc where he started out a true believer and then kind of went the wrong direction? Or was he just always that? He, was he always the kind of guy that would do that? And then like Jesus just picked him because that role had to be filled. So I have two answers for you. One, we, we see evidence in scripture of judas holding the money pouch and and scripture says that he would help himself to it you know and so part of me is you know wants to be like oh he was just a bad apple from the beginning he was just you know that was that was that but part of me goes that's the easy answer that's the convenient answer because all of us want to sit here and and say oh no judas was just bad from the beginning and none of us want to face the realization that it's a possibility that we could have been Judas. That mm-hmm. we could have been the ones to have betrayed Jesus. That, that you know, we want to think, oh, I've had this amazing experience. It's wonderful. And because of that, I could never, ever in my life, like, you know, have betrayed Jesus. Like Judas was just rotten from the beginning. And that's, that's the answer. Like if I had been walking with Jesus, I would have been like John, the beloved, you know, and I wouldn't have been like Peter. I wouldn't have been the one to deny Jesus. And like, we want to like always sit here and think that Judas was just 
bad from the beginning and we, we throw them off. But I think that, like I said, I think it's because we're more comfortable with the fact that we can say Judas was bad from the beginning and that absolves us from any responsibility. And I'm not making an argument against perseverance of the saints. Don't come at me with that in the comment section. I don't want to hear it. I'm just saying we like to think that, you know, we're incapable of making such a mistake when in all actuality uh, we would be very capable, you know, Mm -hmm. all disciples are bad. (laughs) Get out of here. Get out of here. (laughs) so wrapping up that section sam what application wise are you drawing from this text man what is it what does it mean to be poor in spirit i don't have like this is like more an ethereal answer and i hate to give a more ethereal answer than a more like confirmed answer because like you know but, like, what does it mean? I, did I say poor in spirit? I quoted Matthew. I don't, like... What does it mean to be poor, Mr. <laughs> College Ted? Dude, I, I know what it means. But, like, to relative, like, in the world that we live in, I'm not poor. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I ain't sitting here rolling like Bill Gates. But if that's your measurement, then, boy, you, you got another thing coming to you, you know? There's this prayer in, it's either in the King's narrative or the Chronicles narrative, and I don't know which, but it, it says Hezekiah is praying and, and he's rededicating the country of Israel back to Yahweh. And he says, now, God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who are I and who are my people that we should be able to give as, as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we give back to you only that a portion of what comes from your hand. And what would it mean if we, if I, me, Samuel, would stop looking as, as possessions as me and mine, and I start looking at them as they are God's, and that I own nothing, you know? Because all too often I, I want to be like that's that's mine that's mine I don't like I don't want to use that I want to keep that huddled in for me my mine you know things like that and it's like mm, I don't know I don't know what about you man for mine yeah for me I'm going to I'm going to point out something let me tell me if you've ever noticed this before verse twelve what does it say uh it it says during those days he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. Why did he do that in this in this particular instance? Um, I would assume I mean he's praying before he preaches. Is that where you're going going for here? No. What what does he what does thirteen say? What does he immediately do after he prays all night? He summons his disciples. Oh, he, he chooses the 12. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. you know, we think of Jesus being, you know, God, right? And God has that omnipotence thing. But, like, who's going to be in the 12 disciples? Who's Who are going to be the apostles? Like, that's a big decision, right? Mm. Like, you're setting something in motion that's going to change the world. Like, you want to put together, you know, the right team. And we can talk all we want about how the disciples don't fit the the A team image that we would probably pick if we were if we were in charge of this revolution, right? But he wanted to make sure that he made the right choice, and so he, it you know in the in the gospels it says many times Jesus went out to a different place to pray, like that that is frequent. But this is the only time aside from the Garden of Gethsemane where it says Jesus prayed all night. Hmm. I didn't know that. And so my application that I'm going to draw from that is pray about important decisions, right? Um, Like if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And if it's important for Jesus, then it's doubly so for me. And does that mean I'm going to stay up all night? Probably not, but I should at least really devote some energy to that because... It's all well and good to pray for 
um, pray for needs to pray in Thanksgiving and stuff like that. But, you know, asking God for guidance, like I said, if it's important for Jesus to do that, then it's doubly so for me because um, I don't have half the, the connection to the Father that that he must have throughout his life, and yet he still felt it necessary to actually go to a deserted place and, and to pray. So, mm. I'm going to be honest, man. I would I would be like uh, the three, if you remember, mm-hmm. the Garden of Gethsemane, where he, he brings the three, and he's like, hey, yeah, come pray with me. And they're like, yeah, okay, over. <laughs> we were praying, Jesus. We were praying. <sighs> <laughs> no, what? We were praying. I promise. We weren't sleeping. You know, like I'm, I'm gonna be honest, man. You asked me to pray all night. That that might be what happened. A younger me might have been able to stay up all night, but I'm turning into an old man. Sam. Tasman, what you got for me? I got a extra spicy hot take for you today. Oh no. Oh no. I don't know if I can have spicy food. And this one is um this one's in a slow cooker. We're putting it in the crock pot because it's gonna take a while before it's really ready, but I want to get your take right now. Okay. So election day is coming up pretty soon here. Oh no. And there's a decent chance that the Republicans take the House, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Do you think Republicans are going to impeach Joe Biden? And if so, for what grounds? Oof. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't foresee it happening. If it does happen, which I doubt, but if it does, it would be under the guise or involvement of the Hunter Biden laptop um, or the story that broke because of the Hunter Biden laptop. That's the only thing I could think of that they could conjure up. I don't think it's a wise political move, to be honest with you. I think that a much more realistic thing that could happen and I think would be more beneficial to the Republicans is an impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, the secretary of Homeland Security. I think that uh, his knowing and willing deception of the American people in regards to, you know, the quote whipping of migrants that ended up being entirely fake and he knew it was fake, but he was using it to stir up controversy, his poor management at the border, you know, despite, you know, the constant calls from the Biden administration that we were going to end Title 42. Title 42 still is in effect. So to be honest with you, if I were the Republicans, I would think it's more of a smart ploy to try to impeach Mayorkas on uh, a myriad of things and then project some, you know, border security um, standing type situation. Uh, And I think it would be a very, very poor decision to try to impeach Biden. I wouldn't be surprised if your Marjorie Taylor Greens and that kind of facet tried to get it going, uh, especially under the Hunter Biden laptop thing. That's the only thing that they could pull on him. I mean, again, he's had some pretty bad gaffes and maybe there's some question about some mental competency there, but I just, I don't. I don't see that being successful. And to be honest, I don't see it being beneficial because even if we did successfully impeach Biden, we would get Kamala Harris as president. And I'm going to be honest, <laughs> that's pretty bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it's so bad right now that Tim Ryan, who's running against JD Vance in Ohio for Senate is having to distance himself from Kamala Harris in order to get Democratic support. Like, that's how bad she's doing in her own party and with moderates. Like, dude, I, I mean, that's a dumpster fire waiting to happen. And I don't think the Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and the, the kind of fringe side of the Republican Party are going to realize that going in or even think about that. Like, Hey, you may get rid of Biden, but you might get something far worse. And so I think, I think in my opinion, 
my hot take is get rid of Mayorkas. I think that is going to give you all a more political standing. Keep Biden because the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And uh, that's that's my hot take. Um, I said it. It's my opinion. Fun fact. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has already filed for impeachment five times. And one of those times she also um, filed for impeachment of Kamala Harris. And the high crime and misdemeanor that she accused Kamala Harris of was not not implementing the 25th Amendment to take Biden out of office for mental incompetency. So, <laughs> I, And I believe, if, if I remember correctly, that she also said that Harris was basically committing treason by not securing the border, if, if I remember correctly, or something that she had said that in an interview. Um, no, wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I'm not surprised that you said five times. Five times. Oh, good lord! No, I don't. I don't. I don't see it as a smart political play. I just don't. It 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 won't go over well with the moderates. It'll call back to Trumpianism. The best thing that the Republican Party could do right now is is go with a very strong message on the economy, strong message on border security and avoid Trumpianism as much as possible. Trump wasn't a popular candidate. That's why he lost in 2020. And I, I just, even, even if the economy tanked, people don't want to go back to the Trump era. Like there was just too much division, too much infighting. It's just, it's not, not great. Well, we'll see if they follow your advice, and if they don't, then we'll probably be here to cover it. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Thank you all for joining us this week. Front Porch Report is a passion project by a group of people who love Jesus and want to spread his word. Our hosts are Taz Turner and Samuel Hinckley. Our theme song is If by Beautiful Eulogy. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and share this episode with your friends so that we can continue to spread the word. If you'd like to get in touch with us, follow on Twitter where we are at Front Report or send us an email at thefrontporchreport at gmail.com. We'll catch you next week. In the meantime, stay safe out there. Yeah, we're not method dorks, but we picked up some tendencies from them, you know. Sorry, I had an alert that said my connection was disconnected and I was waiting for it to go green so it wouldn't. Talmudically or... That's not, a, that's not an adjective. Had a guy knocking on my door, but it turns out it was just a package. So we're good. Impressive package if it's knocking on your door. Well, it was a guy with a package. Don't you be looking at guys' packages. What's wrong with you? That is spicy. Oh, that's almost as spicy as a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich.